This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. And as a way to collect the energy in here, because it's, it's interesting, it's kind of bright and bouncy, the sound. I want us to do a little chant as a way to settle after conversation. And the chant is one syllable. Um, it's a seed syllable in Sanskrit um, that's called the syllable of wisdom because it's, called the, because, because it's described as the first sound in life and the last sound. But most importantly, it's the seed syllable of wisdom um, because it's the sound of opening or letting go, the seed, seed sound, ah. And I just want us to sing ah together for a little bit as a way to collect our energy present and um, see what happens. So join in, please. Ah, keep it going, ah, and let go as you do, ah, add harmony, ah, 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 nice. You sing good. <laughs> and I don't know what I like better, the harmony when people start to sing the chord or the silence afterward. That's also quite beautiful. So how is the sound? Can you hear me in the back or do I need to talk louder? It's okay. Great. It's sort of like trying to figure out how to work this thing. So appreciate your 
your help. And I'm glad you got to say hello to somebody also. That feels important. There's something for me tonight coming back uh, the, to teach on just the second Monday night I've done. I've done a couple of other teachings in here since this opened. Um, but it feels very special to be here. Um, and so grateful that you're, you've come as well. And I'm, um, I'm also um, just in this beautiful time of my life because as I said, I've recently gotten married to Trudy Goodman, who is a colleague, friend. I've known her for 43 years. She's a, someone I also teach with. Um, I knew her when she called, she was a feminist, and she called herself Trudy Goodwoman for a while. <laughs> then I said, Good woman, isn't that limiting? Why not Trudy Good Being? <laughs> she did that for a year too, but anyway. Um, we've already had four weddings. We've got a couple more to go. Um, we started with a little private ceremony with Ramdas in Hawaii, um, and he married us in his garden, and it was just a couple of people, Ramdas and a couple of people, and it was such a beautiful blessing. Um, and then we had others for her family and my family, people in, in our community and on the East Coast and whatever. And the nice thing about it is that we're really happy and everybody's happy who sees us and then they kind of shower us with their joy and happiness and we get happier and it's kind of like some virtuous cycle of deliciousness. So that's been going on all summer. Um, and it's not, of course, the only thing going on in the world, as we know. This morning, um, I helped with the cremation of a very close friend, Gail Seneca, who was a big part of this community and who died last Monday, unexpectedly, at age 62, um, and did a lot of prayers and blessings and wrapped her in prayer flags and did all these things, and then she was cremated and burned and turned into ash. And I walked out and, you know, death is so mysterious. Here's this person, including you, by the way, in case you think it only happens to other people, right? Here's this person that you know and love and they're in that form and then they're just not there anymore. It's so clear that she's not that body, that corpse. Um, and I came out and there was those beautiful wispy clouds today. And then I looked at it, there was this incredible bush with these purple flowers and it was like the earth was saying, you know, here we are in this mystery um, and you can't really name it or hold on to it, but appreciate every, every moment of it. Um, and I actually I met uh, Michael Murphy, who's an old friend, um, the founder of Esalen, he's in his mid-80s. Um, I met him in the summer, it was a bit earlier, some time ago. And I said, you know, are you down at Esalen these days much? No, I said, so what are you, what are you doing these days? He said, well, um, Warriors games and funerals, was his answer. <laughs> you know, when you're 85, that's kind of what the territory of it. Um, and then my daughter, who's 31, is about to go. She, she got married a couple of years ago to a wonderful guy. Um, went this weekend to a wedding. It was the 15th wedding she's been to in three years because her whole cohort of people in their late 20s and early 30s are getting married and now they're all starting to have babies. And 
it's just like watching the seasons turn as we start to move toward fall and it's the cycle of our humanity. Um, and uh, here we are. And there's an old Chinese poet who wrote, I, I wish I brought it with me, but some line he said, when I was young, um, I used to talk about the sorrows of the world um, to pretend that I had some profound um, nature and something important to say. Um, and now I'm old and I've passed through all those difficulties and I just smile when I see a flower and love the people walking by, something like that. Very, very simple. So we come together in a temple like this or in a meditation class, really. Um, and um, there's a kind of question for us about human possibility. You know, what do we do with this human life that's given to us? Because not only is there birth and death that I'm just talking about, but there's also um, politics. We won't go any further, but it's there, right? Um, and there's hunger and injustice and warfare, and there's also incredible creativity and, and um, millions of acts of generosity on the planet every single day. And how do we guide our life as human beings in this human incarnation? If we don't understand, um, it's easy to get lost. And there are certain questions that can't be answered by Google, you know. Um, how do we navigate? Because without some sense of wisdom, some sense of understanding of this human predicament, this human life, we can move through life like a boat without a rudder, get thrown around by the blessings and the curses and the problems and the things. And, you know, it's very easy to get reactive in family. That's why they call it nuclear family. In, um, <laughs> in politics, in, you know, in, uh, in all kinds of ways. You, we all know this. Um, and we get, um, we get lost in that. And yet who we are, and part of the reason I started with that particular guided meditation, who we are, and there I'm sitting this morning with Gail's body, you are not this physical body. You inhabit it, you were born into it, you got, you got issued a body basically. Okay, try this incarnation, see how you like it, what there is to learn. But you are the spirit that came into that body and will leave that body. You are consciousness itself. And when you're caught and identified and reactive to the various things that happen, when you're in the smaller sense of self, it's called in Buddhist teachings, the small sense of self, you know what that means intuitively, don't you? You know, when you feel, it's also called the body of fear, when you're frightened and worried and contracted and reactive. Um, you get caught a lot in things and basically you suffer and you also um, can create suffering for people around you. But there's also a way, when we talk about a boat with a rudder, there's also a way to navigate the joys and sorrows of life um, more wisely. In the Buddhist teachings, um, one of the kind of summary descriptions of the teachings um, 
in Sanskrit or Pali is Shila Samadhi Panya, which means um, virtue, um, steadiness, and wisdom. Um, and these are seen as the practices, understandings, ways to move through human life. And let me describe them a little um, because they also speak to this shift of identity. Let's see if I can weave these together a little bit in some way. So virtue is the first practice that allows us to move through the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, creating well-being and happiness for ourselves and others. And it's not about morality or the Ten Commandments and you were supposed to, thou shalt, whatever. Um, generally when people say thou shalt, there's some little voice that says, you're not going to tell me what to do. You know this. So it's, I don't think it works that way. It's much more about um, what brings us happiness and who we think we are. And in the simplest way, it's, it's really very practical. Um, it, it's hard to sit and meditate after a day of kill, killing and stealing and lying. It doesn't work very well. You can't quiet your mind. You don't sleep well. Um, so, um, first of all, it doesn't affect your body and mind in a good way to, to cause harm to yourself and cause harm to others. Um, but more than that, when you live with integrity, when you speak what's true, when you act in ways that don't cause harm to yourself or other people, um, it changes your sense of yourself. Because when you have that as a rudder, as a center, all right, I undertake the training or the practice to not cause harm through my speech or my actions and, and so forth to myself or others. Then when difficult things come and you remember that, um, instead of reacting, I'm angry or I need this or I'm addicted or I want this and so forth, it's as if who you are is bigger than those forces. And your identity shifts from being caught in those things to being what we did in the meditation tonight, to being more the loving awareness saying, okay, I'm, I could get angry about this, or I could be upset, or I could hurt somebody because I feel so hurt, or I could, you know, I need this fix or whatever it is. But there's a recognition, this is not, this is not healthy for me or another. This would cause harm to me or another. And so you shift your sense of yourself from being the one who's reactive to being the witnessing of it, to becoming the loving awareness and says, you know, I don't think so. I don't think this is the way to live. And when you sit and meditate, it's not to have some particular state, but it's to quiet yourself enough that your conscience and your wisdom and your understanding can show itself to you. And you know how great it is to talk to somebody who has integrity who speaks the truth, how beautiful it is to, to be with somebody who has that kind of integrity. And then, of course, it gets more um, wonderful. Uh, let me see. Remember a couple of years ago, there was a, a, one of the many um, terrible mass shootings in America that happened to the man who went in, I think in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, into an Amish schoolhouse and shot ten school, little schoolgirls, five of whom died. Um, and this was in the news, everybody heard this story. Within hours of the shooter entering a one-room school 
and shooting the ten girls, killing five, and then himself. The Amish community forgave the killer and his family. News of the instant forgiveness stunned the outside world almost as much as the incident itself did. Um, some worried that the hasty forgiveness was emotionally unhealthy, but members of the Amish community began offering words and hugs of forgiveness when the blood was barely dry on the schoolhouse floor. A grandmother laughed when I asked, this was a reporter, if this forgiveness was orchestrated. You mean that some people actually met and thought we had a meeting to plan this forgiveness? As the father of a slain daughter explained, our forgiveness was not our words, it is simply what we do. Members of the community visited the gunman's widow at her home with food and flowers and hugged members of his family. There were a few words, but it was primarily the hugs, the gifts, and the mere presence and act of grace that communicated Amish forgiveness. Of the 75 people at the killer's burial, about half were Amish, including parents who had buried their own children a day before. And Amish people contributed a fund for the shooter's family. So you start to hear this and you realize, what does it mean to live with a kind of core of integrity of what your values are, to not cause harm, even if others do. As Booker T. Washington said, never let them pull you down so low as to hate them, to not let your own heart be poisoned. And in the, in the Dhammapada, in the um, beautiful verses of the Buddha, it says, the scent of jasmine, rose bay, and sandalwood travels only as far as the wind, but the perfume of virtue rises even to the heavens. And so this is the first piece of how to live wisely. And you can't do it without quieting yourself and realizing that all the reactions are not who you are. Who you are is wiser and bigger and more loving than that. Then the second, sila, samadhi, um, really means quieting the mind so that you can listen, so that you can see clearly, so that you can understand and you quiet yourself not so much through effort. I'm going to quiet myself now. Let's see, how many minutes do I have to do this, right? Um, we used to do that, actually, in the monastery. I mean, there was, you know, how it is with young guys, competitive meditation and stuff like that, right? <laughs> I can sit longer than you and not move. and You get very concentrated and stuff like that, but, you know, then it passes. Um, it's not about that. It's more, it's something much more um, both tender and um, deep. And that is um, a willingness to step outside of our social identity and our busyness identity, which we all have, uh, texting and our screens and our, all the things that we tend to, which is all fine, to walk in the mountains to sit quietly, to, you know, fill our bird feeder or walk the dog or, you know, play with the child or just sit quietly to listen to a piece of music and mostly just to stop and listen to your own heart, to have a conversation with your heart in some way and to find your way to quiet your mind. 
Because when you do, then you can see clearly, then your conscience speaks to you, then your wisdom body, that loving awareness is accessible to you. And without it, the mind gets stirred up and it's sort of like, you know, mud or something like that. You can't see clearly and when you stop, the mud settles a little bit and then you can see. So here's a poem from uh, Jane Hirschfield, wonderful poet, friend in Mill Valley, about tenderness and inspiration and how to quiet yourself. Think of those Chinese monks' tales, years of struggling in the zendo and then a clink while sweeping up of stone on stone and poof, enlightenment. Emily Dickinson's wisdom, truth in circuit lies. Or C. Grant's, quote, common birds and how to know them, New York Scribner's 1901. Okay. The approach must be by detour, advantage taken of rock, tree, mound, and brush. But if without success this way, use artifice, throw off all stealth's appearance, watchfulness, look guileless, a loiterer, purposeless, stroll on, not too directly gazing at the bird, avoiding any gaze too steadfast, or failing still in this, give voice to sundry whistles, chirp, your quarry may stay on to answer you. And it's lovely from the birding book to say you don't go grasp the bird. You wander about and he's kind of sidelong glance. Oh, there's a little bird over there, but you don't really let them know that you're looking. Um, more beef briefly, try, but stymied, give it up. Do something else. Leave the untrappable thought, go walking. Ideas buzz the air like flies. Return to sit. A fox trots by with a cream-dipped tail and fire, red fire legs doused watery brown. Enlightenment, wrote one master, is an accident, though certain efforts make you accident-prone. <laughs> so there's something about us as human beings, especially in the modern time, that need to find ways to still ourselves, to quiet ourselves for the sake of our children, for the sake of the earth that needs to be listened to, for the sake of one another and all the differences that make us up, you know, because um, no amount of outer technology, nanotechnology, space technology, biotechnology, computers, you know, this whole vast amazing development we have is going to stop continuing warfare, continuing racism, continuing destruction of the environment, continuing tribalism. Um, those arise out of the human heart. And the outer developments that are so remarkable now have to be matched by the inner human development. Um, and to do that means that we have to learn to listen, to hear our interdependence, to feel our connection with life, um, to see with clarity, to listen to conscience, as I said. Because there's a lot of other, um, I think the technical Sanskrit word is BS that's out there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, and so that too becomes 
uh, important to us. To live a life that's wise requires a non-harming virtue. It requires a way of quieting ourselves. And when we do, what happens is that we get bigger, like we did in that meditation, at least for those of you that it, that it was the right practice tonight. There's lots of other practices, so if it wasn't, there's do something else. But um, you step out of the small sense of self, the body of fear, all these thoughts and worries, and you realize there is a kind of vastness that um, as the mind quiets, allows you to see not just caught up in your own personal stuff, but something bigger. The turning of the seasons, the love that's big enough to hold it all. And then, of course, it gets more difficult because you go to wisdom, and wisdom is really the question of mystery. Things are impermanent. You know, standing there in Mill Valley by the crematorium oven with his body, and the Buddha's words, it seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. Um, and this is one of the big mysteries. And in fact, in, I think it's in the Mahabharata, there's this conversation, maybe it's between Krishna and Arjuna or something, and they ask, you know, what are the kind of great mysteries of the earth? And Krishna answers, well, one of the great mysteries is that people can see others die all around them and still think it won't happen to them. <laughs> but things are impermanent, you know, and they're uncertain. And my teachers loved uncertainty. My teacher, Achan whatever questions and things we would ask, profound or mundane, half the time he would smile, or not half, but regularly, and he would say, it's uncertain, isn't it? Especially if you had a really pressing question. <laughs> and it was a beautiful thing. It just opened the gates to realize that we don't actually know some things we know. So I have this guest card, it's plastic, that I got at a hotel in a developing country. I won't name, there are many of them. And it says, Dear Guests, it is our pleasure to provide you with a stamp postcard for sending out to your loved ones around the world. Please leave the postcard at the desk or to receptionist. After filling up the address and your greetings, we will be glad to mail for you. Note, due to a poor postage system, your postcard may take some time to reach, or even may not always reach your address. <laughs> Hotel management, right? And that's kind of human life, really, you know. It's just how it is. Um, there's 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, and gain and loss and pleasure, pleasure and pain, and birth and death and sweet and sour, and duality is woven in this way, and this is what we get in human incarnation. So how do we work with this? All right, so here's a little bit more meditative and kind of wisdom strategy. It's said, um, being rather practical, that there are different strategies for releasing ourselves when we're caught in the small self and the body of fear. 
And the metaphor that's used is of a poison tree. It says there's a tree whose berries are poison. So um, the first strategy is to cut the tree down so nobody gets poisoned and you don't eat the berries and just get rid of it. That's one level. Then the next level of the strategy is to say, but trees are beautiful. We need them to exchange carbon dioxide and oxygen and trees have all kinds of uses and, and let's not cut it down. Let's just put a little fence around it with a sign that says don't eat the berries. They're, they're poison for human beings. And that way we're not even harming the tree and no one else is harmed. More gracious. And then there's the person that wanders along and says, ah, oh, I've been looking for a tree like this. These are the berries that if you take them and grind them up and add a little sulfur and whatever the right ingredients are, um, they become the medicine that cures some of the most difficult diseases of the world. These, this poison becomes something of value. So that's the metaphor that's used. So how does mindfulness and shift of identity work in that? Um, at the first level, the cutting down part, is you have things, we all do, that arise. Um, and uh, your fears, the repeated stories, the self-judgment, the anger, um, the addictive uh, patterns that we have, um, you know, the kinds of delusion and confusion that we have, those kind of things which come, the prejudices that are part of your life. Um, and of course the first step is just to see them. Just like seeing the tree, you need to actually recognize, oh, hmm, these things may not have my best interest in mind, these thoughts. They're actually not on my side. As a matter of fact, they're old habits, you know who put them in there or where you got them. But they arise and they're painful. They cause you suffering, they cause others. So first, like the Buddha under the tree of enlightenment, when all the difficulties would arise, they were personified as Mara. Excuse me for mixing my metaphors with the trees a little tonight. But anyway, Mara would come as the... Mara was sort of the, the Indian archetype of all the difficult energies of life. And the Buddha would say, oh, is that you again, Mara? You know, Mara in the form of fear, Mara in the form of anger, Mara in the form of greed, or, you know, grasping, Mara in the form of self-judgment. Oh, I see you, Mara. And sometimes all that's needed is to say, oh, I see you, and who you are becomes the loving awareness, and you're not so caught in that. Does that make sense to you? That's partly why we meditate, to free ourselves. But then sometimes, um, at this level, you may actually need to cut the damn tree down. And I'm, I'm remembering this story of um, this account. I was teaching back in some decades ago at Esalen, um, and one of my teachers and friends, um, Zen Master Sung San, San Sinim, a Korean Zen Master, but a big center in Providence and centers all around the country, came and among his students was this couple that I was close to. I was spending a lot of time teaching at Esalen with Stan Groff and other friends. Um, and uh, they, were be they both became close students of his, and then they went through a really messy breakup and divorce. And the man was just broken-hearted because this woman left him for some other young guy and whatever. And um, the Zen master was very tender and compassionate and consoling of him. Um, during that breakup, they were all there together. 
And then the Zen master went away and traveled back to Korea and around the world so, and didn't come back for like nine or ten months or something, almost a year, and he returned back. And we all came to greet him. I was back there again, including this um, fellow whose wife had left him and so forth. And the master looked at him and said, how are you? And you could see his face was morose and he was still in the middle of grieving and so forth. And he said, oh, I brought you a present. And he reached in his bag and pulled out this beautiful mala with beads of Kuan Yin on it. He said, here, give me your hands. And he put it in his hands and then he hauled off and he smacked him across the face and shouted really loud, let her go. And we were all like, our jaws dropped open. But, um, and I'm not saying this is like good therapy or anything like that. But you know what? It worked. <laughs> there was just a, it was like, okay already, enough self-pity and enough whatever, and enough you greet's fine, it's time to just put it down, you know. And it's as if he said, you're bigger than that. Who you are is not just that. And it's not all that identification and all the tears. And so who you are is much bigger than that. And he could see it. It was kind of astonishing. Um, so that's the first level where you recognize what's there. And in recognizing it, you kind of let it go. Or at times, like you're in 12-step work, you just say, I'm not going to drink anymore. You just don't do it. Then the next level, where you put the fence around it, tree is the level of compassion um, in which you see that everything deserves compassion, every single thing, you know, so that um, visiting Ramdas in June and Ramdas is a very dear friend and so forth, he has this giant altar in his living room, he lives in this house in Maui in his wheelchair where he's been for 17 years in a wheelchair since his big stroke, but he still can talk with some aphasia, but he can speak pretty well, and he's just very, very loving. And on this altar is, you know, pictures of his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and Ramana Maharshi, and Ananda Mayama, one of the, she was one of the great, greatest saints of the last century in India, and, you know, this Baba and that Swami, and images of the Buddha, and Ganesh, and Saraswati, and... You know, it's a, it's a polyamorous altar, basically, right? <laughs> but also, on this altar with all these pictures, there's Mahar Baba, all these great pictures, is a picture of John Boehner, one of um, Dick Cheney, you know. And Ramda says, if you're going to practice love, you know, you've got to stretch a little bit, right? <laughs> Yeah. James Baldwin says, love takes off the masks. It really asks something much deeper than the superficial, to look with the eyes of compassion at every single being. And then the medicine starts to get transformed, the poison, in some way, when you bring that kind of tenderness and care. And then if you want to turn it really into a deeper medicine, um, in Tibet, um, they pray for suffering. May I be granted enough suffering that the great heart of compassion will awaken in me. You know, bring it on, baby, in some way. That's a tough prayer, right? It is. 
Um, the goal in spiritual life isn't to avoid suffering. Anybody succeeded that, by the way? Raise your hand. I'm just checking out here. Um, the goal is to use it as medicine to transform your heart and to remember who you really are. Poem from Dina Metzger, wonderful friend. And some of you may have seen the image of this back in the 70s or 80s of this woman. She had a mastectomy and she had this huge dragon tattoo on her body. And there she is standing with one breast and the dragon up her body, you know, quite wonderful, beautiful being. She says, give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and we will begin again. And there's something in her poem that says, show me the sufferings of the world and I will transform them into freedom. And that's really the, the third turning of the medicine. And you do it through this shift of identity um, where you realize that what you face and what you go through is not so personal. It's part of the human journey. Um, in this new book that I'm just finishing, I read the story of this woman, Whitney, um, who went back to the Midwest um, to take care of her parents in rural Illinois. And, you know, her dad was in the early middle stages of Alzheimer's and her mother had broken her hip and was, you know, having trouble. And her only sibling was her brother who all he wanted to do, he didn't get involved. His would call his sister and say, you take care of it. You, can, you know that kind of family dynamic. And so she took a month off from work and the house was in shambles and her father couldn't care for himself very well and mom's fracture was still healing and stuff and she knew they couldn't stay there but it was her childhood home. It was her parents and she was facing the reality of their aging and their demise. And so she walked up on a hillside nearby that she knew growing up and she just started to weep because she didn't want to lose her childhood home. She didn't want her parents to get sick and die um, or have to leave their house either. Um, and then she looked out and there's this vast landscape and here's the little town and, you know, here's the farms and here's the cumulus clouds and here's, you know, the dotted little clusters of other farms in a distance. And somehow she felt held more in the vastness than just when she was inside the house. And she could instinctively feel how everything had its seasons, you know. Arriving, departing, flourishing, struggling, coming into being, fading away. And she began to reflect how many other people are in this same predicament. And as she breathed more with this kind of ease, her mind opened more. She realized, I'm not the only one with aging parents. There's, you know, seven million others this very day in this country. And the space opened and she felt somehow more trust. We can do this. We know how to do this. With this spacious heart, we remember a bigger picture. Even though illness strikes, the parents dying, some form of loss comes, and it will come. We also can recognize that it's part of the rhythms of life. And among the multitude of humans, many like us are experiencing loss or pain or change or needing renewal. And the world keeps turning, 
the farmers growing food, the markets trading, the musicians playing. We live amidst a great, ever-changing paradox. Breathe, relax, one day at a time. And Whitney realized all of these things and cried again, her heart tender, this time tears of relief. So we somehow move from our separateness to sense both the vastness and the, the love that propels life itself and that we are a part of. I tell the story and I'll make it very brief because I've got other miles to go here tonight of my friend Salam, who was in a prison in the Middle East. He'd been a journalist and was imprisoned and tortured and things like that. And he almost died from his torture at one point. He said, I did die actually. I met him because he was doing hospice work. And I said, what are you doing here in the Bay Area doing hospice work? He said, well, I like to sit with people and let them know that um, it's perfectly safe. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, tell me. And he said, well, he said, I was, you know, in this prison on and off for a long time and beaten, tortured, and then one day even my medical things say that I died, this guard. I'd done something that pissed him off and he was kicking and beating me and blood coming out. And he said, and I floated out of my body as people do in accidents and even in meditation it's possible. You can train yourself as I have out of the body experiences. You know you're not just the body. And he said, and I was floating on the ceiling watching the boot kick the body and all this, but it was very peaceful. He said, and then something really interesting happened. And I sat up, I said, oh, you know. He said, yeah, then it was as if a bubble popped. And I was no longer located as a self of witnessing, observing this, but that sense of self burst open and I became everything. And I was the green paint flecking on the prison wall, and I was the goat you could hear outside on the hillside, and I was the boot kicking the body, and I was that body lying there, and I was, and I was, he said, and this immense joy came to me because I knew that who I was was everything. I was life and I could never die. Um, and when I came back in a broken body in the bottom of the cell, he said, I healed and I got out, you know, and um, I couldn't fight for one side or another anymore. You know, and he was of one particular group, or and he said, "I married a woman from the opposite side," and that—that's the closest thing I could come to saying this is what I understood. You are loving awareness itself, and it's born into you, spirit, consciousness, this mystery. And oh, what's scientific about that? The brain makes consciousness. Well. That's a sort of small story. Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, said, you either need a big story or no story at all when you're facing the mystery, you know. Um, you're loving awareness. And when the Buddha was walking down the road after his enlightenment, at least as this story is told, and we're just telling stories, right? Um, and a man came up to him and said, wow, you seem like this amazing being, he was a handsome prince and obviously he was in a good mood or whatever after his enlightenment. Are you some 
You know, are you some kind of a wizard or magician? No. Are you a guru? No, not exactly. Well, you know, um, are you enlightened? Um, Buddha said no. Interesting. Um, uh, are, are you a god? No. Are you a man? No. What are you? And the Buddha looked back and said, I am awake. And the word Buddha means awakened. So he wasn't claiming anything, I'm this or I'm that. Um, what I am is awareness itself, which is what you are. And you know this. You've walked in the mountains, or you know it from when you gave birth to a child, or you sat in that mystery of someone as they, with someone as they died, or when you took peyote, or some other <laughs> substance. Come on, let's fess up, right? You know, or when you heard that amazing piece of music or were making love, you all know it because it's true. It's absolutely true. It's your nature. And we become reduced, in fact. I think it was Alan Watts who said, um, the mind is actually a reducing valve. The mystery is so extraordinary and around us all the time. I mean, I was looking at those flowers this morning after the cremation and I could have just drowned in the purple of these, you know, flowers. What is a flower? Why does the earth, well, the, the Japanese poet says the earth laughs in flowers. How, you know, how can it be that it makes all these colored flowers? And yes, there's evolution and, and I believe in that and all of that, but it didn't have to do that, you know. <laughs> this, is, this is really extravagant. The earth deals in extravagance. You know, it's so mysterious, and we wake up to it. Um, little children have it, the mystery. In Bali, they say that um, the people closest to the gods are newborns and old people. The newborns, because they've just come in, and so they're, as Emerson said, trailing clouds of glory and seeing everything anew. And the old people, because they know they're headed back to that mystery. The people farthest from the gods are middle-aged people with mortgages, right? <laughs> Basically, you know. But what's true is that that's not who you are. Who you are is something much vaster and much more beautiful than that. And um, so a couple of poems about death. Um, see which order to do. This is again from Jane Hirschfield. She writes, the dead do not want us dead. The dead do not want us dead. Such petty errors are left for us, the living. Nor do they want our mourning. No gift to them, not rage, not weeping. Return one of them, any one of them to the earth and look such foolish skipping, such telling of bad jokes, such feasting, even a cucumber, even a single anise seed, a feast. You know, there's something so blessed about every moment and every taste in this earth. And this from Diane de Prima, old friend and Buddhist poet, for Zen master Suzuki Roshi of San Francisco Zen Center, for Suzuki Roshi. After you died, I dreamed you were at my apartment and we ate soba together, 
you giggling, and I slurped a lot. And you said, don't tell them I'm not dead, and pointed down the street toward the Zen center. I don't want them to bother me. We laughed and drank the broth, and I kept that promise. I think they still don't know. <laughs> so we're here in this mystery, and it's not about knowledge, it's really about wonder. Emptiness and fullness and love. You know, I was talking to a wise elder recently, and one of the things that she does with her life, um, she's a, been, you know, a therapist and healer for a long time, is she's worked often over the years with people whose children have died, which is a, both a tremendous and terrible loss, and it's almost unspeakable in some way, um, and yet it also happens. I mean, in the old days it happened all the time. You had 12 kids because you hoped that six survived. Um, and I used to, well, we sort of adopted some families from Laos, my family, because I can speak Lao and Thai and some of those languages in the canal. And the first family that we adopted for a lot of years had four kids. And these were the four that were left of their eight children. So, as you know, that's how it used to be. But now it's, uh, we, and we can hardly imagine it. But this woman works with them. And she said, one of the most important things that we do um, when we get to it in the work is have them talk to their child. And she said, it's astonishing the kind of intelligence and understanding that they hear from the spirit of that child to guide them. You know, mommy, daddy, I don't want you to live your life just weeping. I want you to get, I, I want you to, you know, this or that. But very specific things. And I'm not saying you need to believe this. But I'm saying it because we're in a mystery and nobody can really tell you. But there is um, over thousands of years and millions of people and vast different cultures, there is an understanding that who we are is not limited to this body. And something in you knows that it's true as well. So, in the earliest teachings of the Buddha, he says, I am awake. This is what I am. I am awareness itself. I am compassionate, loving awareness. And then he says, you too. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember that this is your birthright. And when you remember it, it turns out that that awareness that is who you are is commensurate with, it's maybe not the right language, is composed of love. That they're really not different because it's the same thing. It's what consciousness is itself. I remember being in a long retreat where I was doing all these samadhi practices and jhanas and all kinds of, you know, dissolving into love and light and my body disappearing, stuff like that. And then I, I was sitting... Um, and I went outside, it was a kind of clear night, and I could experience starlight, almost like it was touching my body. And then I realized those photons from the stars, right, my, my little scientific thing, they were an expression of love, and that the stars were actually making love with one another by sending out their light to the other stars. Now, 
I mean, that's just a poem for you. But it was, it was, it was you know, what do they call them? Mystical experiences or something like that. It was very cool. Um, test it in yourself when your identity shifts from the small sense of self, me, my body, my things, my worries, my fears, my hopes, my grasping, and you sense the vastness, the turning of the seasons, the rhythm of birth and death, of joy and sorrow, of gain and loss, when you sense this and breathe into it and rest in that vastness as we started, whether it's also true that the heart becomes lighter and as expansive as the mind, that in Sanskrit, mind and heart are the same word, jitta. That, the, that they both open at the same time. And the story of an old, of, well, the story of a, of a young monk who'd struggled and struggled to get enlightened, is an old Zen story I haven't told for a decade or two. And um, <sighs> struggles didn't work very well. And then there was rumor that there was this wise old master who lived in a hut or a cave way at the top of the mountains. So he says, enough of this hard training in the Zen monastery. I'm going to go find that old hermit who's supposed to be the, the real deal up there, you know, like the guru in the cave, and maybe he will help me. And so he starts trudging up the mountains, walking in these very high mountains, and he gets up and up and up and up, and then he sees an old man coming down carrying a big bundle. And he stops the old man and he says, do you know anything about this old man that lives in the cave? And the old man's face lights up and he realizes, well, it could be him. And the old man says, why do you ask? And he says, well, I've been struggling for 10 years, meditating, trying to get enlightened. Um, and I've come to find an answer. Do you know anything about this enlightenment, old man? And the old man looks him in the eyes and then just drops the bundle that he's carrying. And you know how it works in these Zen stories. For some reason, it's very easy. Um, of course, he did 10 years of heart training first. But he drops the bundle, and the man, the young man who's climbing the mountain says, that easy? You just let it go. And he has this beautiful, liberating moment. Oh, all that I saw is just about letting go, not trying to get enlightened, not trying to be something, just be, just be the awareness, the love itself. So then he stands there and turns back to the old man and says, so now what? <laughs> it's a question, isn't it? And the old man reaches down and picks up the bundle and walks off toward town. And the reason that this, the rhythm of this story is told is that this is the story of the bodhisattva, of the being who remembers who they are and then enters the marketplace with bliss-bestowing hands, comes down from the mountain or the temple or out from your, you know, your walk by the ocean or whatever nourishes you and reminds you of the vastness and then brings a gift to your workplace, to your family, to the political life, to the environment, because it's all part of you. And you have something beautiful to give because you know that who you are is that too, that you are loving awareness, you are connected with it all. It is your true nature. You have gold in you. 
you have light in you. And you know, when you meet somebody who has light, a lot of light, you know what that's like. And I don't mean some sort of woo type light. I mean, because children have it, you know, on a good day anyway, right? <laughs> that's the way children are. But there's just this beautiful light that shines out of people's eyes. That's what was born into you. This is another Jane Hirschfield. She says, it's a poem called Lighthouse. Just a few lines. Most lights are made to, to see by. This one, to be seen. Its vision sweeps its one path like an aged monk raking a garden, his questions long ago answered. Far off, night-grazing horses, breath-scented with oat grass and fennel, step through the light, disappear, step through it, disappear again. The sweep of the lighthouse. And here's the complimentary poem from Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instructions. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light. So the old man walks with his bundle back in town with bliss bestowing hands. He brings a tenderness and a compassion for everybody who's forgotten who they really are. He teaches vastness. He rests in openness. You know, um, Thich Nhat Hanh says it, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all was lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And so when you remember who you are, even in the midst of what life brings you, which it does, joy and sorrow. Um, you bring love and wisdom and something that's undying, that can't be taken from you. So a last little story. This is a story from a woman um, bringing her husband to the Mayo Clinic for evaluation. He had ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, and his body was beginning to shut down. Usually you just have a couple years. And We entered the lobby of the Mayo Clinic, the main lobby, and there was a pianist playing. And we realized it was the first song we had ever danced to, a song we had danced to again at our wedding. And my husband, Randall, put down his briefcase filled with all the doctor's reports and test results and grabbed my waist and took me in his arms and danced me across the floor all around that lobby. 
And when it was over and folks were applauding, we became aware of how many people had gathered around were in wheelchairs and with walkers. And we suddenly realized in that spontaneous moment of celebration, we had been dancing on behalf of the life and love that lived in each person gathered together in that room. I looked around that room lined with those waiting in wheelchairs. We found ourselves thinking of the pool of Bethesda. We imagined Jesus asking us, do you want to be healed? And we thought we heard him say, then pick up your feet and dance. <laughs> <laughs>